have had some interesting introductions as a speaker, but never have I followed a magician before. So I have no idea what the proper protocol is. I thought I was having a weird one when I decided that I was going to speak on the book of Revelation today, but uh, <laughs> I've been outdone in, in, in doing things to the unique. You know, um, it's a strange thing to say, but I kind of thought, especially since I'm here supposedly talking about God, that I've done a better job of settling into being a Christian by now. Don't get me wrong, you know, I'm still on Team Jesus. I can recite the creeds without crossing my fingers. And the scriptures of the Old and New Testament still make demands upon me that compel my imagination, my obedience. But can I be honest when I say that this part of the story, my middle years, I thought would be easier. Wait, is this new? <laughs> Dude, this was like, is this your water? Wait, 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 whose water is it? I mean, this, this is not an unopened thing of water. It's halfway, oh my goodness. That's okay. I'll just rough it. I'm rough. I'm, I'm, I've lost trust. Okay. I have used water. Okay. This is how you do it. I know there's things in New York, they do it different than down south, but this is a new thing. It's late at night. But can I, can I, can I say that I thought, um, like I was saying, that this part of the story would be easier? When I used to tell my conversion story, I put the turning point in my spiritual life at the tender age of 21, where during Christmas break, I had an encounter with God, and I came back to my university campus as a changed person. I met my future wife um, the next year during my senior year in college, and a few years later, at the ages of 25 and 24 respectively, we're married. And I kind of thought I had made all the major decisions up to that point. Okay. This one is fuller than that one. Okay. If I, if I collapse or something, we know what's going Okay. Like I said, I thought I had made all the major decisions. And I was in seminary at the time, and I thought I would serve in some parish for 50 years and just die of an old age. I remember we used to walk, we went walking through the Cotswolds once in England, and they had those old parishes that were back from the 1200s. And I was like, Mandy, wouldn't it be great if I could just serve in an old parish like this and die peacefully? I remember having this distinctive memory, and this may seem like an arrogant thing to say, but I'm grateful for my mom, because she had done such a great job of raising me through the rough times. But I had it, right? And I'll take it from here. But that conversion story is now 20 years old. And a lot of life has happened since then. And some of the most difficult parts of my life have involved precisely the Christian bits of it. You know what I'm talking about? I've been a member of not one, but two church splits. I've been a part of two different church implosions. Those are different ones. Maybe I'm the problem, right? <laughs> Early on during my, during my 
academic career, I lost out on job opportunities. Once because I was too liberal for speaking about racism and injustice and their problems facing the stepped-on peoples of the world. And another school went hire me because I was too conservative, because I had the audacity to believe that the Bible was actually an inspired book, and that I was not one who sat in judgment upon it, but it sat in judgment upon me. I've also lived through the rise and fall of many well-known Christian leaders. You know, this, and, and we, I'm a Southerner, so we don't mention the names of the people who we, they just, they just never existed, right? But when they had conferences like this, and they, and they invited us in as young people to hear from the people who knew what they were doing, years later, they trended upon social media. And I can only say it like how I feel it right now. Do we live in a time where racism seems to be cresting in our republic? And misogyny seems to be stalking the halls of our universities and our churches. But many, if I can be honest, in the church have decided the problem is not racism or sexism, but the people who talk about it. We're the dangers and the threats to Christianity. The hard part for me as an adult is the Christian bit. But things can get even more complicated because it's true that some of my fellow travelers on this road contending for justice have become convinced somehow that justice and holiness are somehow enemies. As if the God who inspires our contending for justice does not always have, also have something to say about the way in which we live our lives and function as a community. Let me speak plainly. Many people think that the road to a just society is one that leads right outside the great tradition and into the desert of revision of the Christian faith. And quite simply, I disagree. In other words, I thought that by now, the church will be better and the world will be better. But much to my surprise, I discovered what should have been obvious had I attended to the reality as described in the Old and New Testament, that this world is profoundly broken and in need of rescue. And the church isn't just the hope of the world, it's a fellow patient in need of healing and transformation. And our generation, for all of its wisdom and ingenuity, has found that we, like those before us, have failed in our attempt to create the utopia, politically or in the church. We have not represented our king and our kingdom well. And you are living under a rock. If you do not see the uncertain future it seems to be awaiting this church in this, in this country. I'm afraid. Is anyone else like this? I don't know what the future holds. I worry about what kind of Christianity my children are going to inherit. They're mixed race kids. Which churches will accept them? Which Christian colleges will take them in and teach them about who they are and who God has called them to be? But in that place, when in certain future, we bump up against the Christians to whom the apocalypse of John was written in the year around 95 AD, during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. 
when John composes his apocalypse, we're a little over 60 years from the resurrection of Jesus, and many of the early leaders of that movement have met an untimely end. James is dead. Peter is dead. Paul is dead. Most of the 12 are gone, but John lingers. What does it look like to live as a Christian after the heady days of the beginning of the Christian movement, to see the Spirit fall on Pentecost and the church explode, only to be followed by the slow trickle of death and the loss of friends and the compromise of once flourishing churches? What happens after the initial joy of conversion fades? We're left with the complicated reality of the aftertimes. Have you ever thought about what it would have been like to be John? To have been there on Pentecost and to see the church explode and to have maybe had this idea, we might convert the entire world. You ever had that feeling? Things are going well in the church. It will always be this way. He had not yet met the Apostle Paul <laughs> and the controversy that was going to tear the church apart. The Jew-Gentile controversy was still in the future. And he had not lost his friends. But now John lingers and he faces an uncertain future. And that rosy prospect in the heady days of the first years of the Christian church are now long gone. I say, John, then, like many of us, if you've been Christian long enough, you enter the aftertimes. Despite whatever images you might have of early Christianity, there was at this point actually no organized persecution of believers. The Romans weren't yet hunting down Christians. But in a thousand ways, Christianity bumped up against the empire, becoming an annoyance to the people who were in charge. I'll give you just a few examples. Most trade guilds in the first century had a patron god. Just imagine for a second, you, you, um, you are, you're a shipping person, and as a part of the shipping guild, they give an offering to Poseidon so that you have good fishing trips and there be no storms at sea. But look at you, you fundamentalist. You become a Christian, right? <laughs> and you decide there's only one true God, and he controls the fish of the sea. And so you refuse to give the offering to Poseidon, and all of a sudden, you lose your job. Becoming a Christian then has not solved your problems. It has made your life worse. If there is a storm at sea and you didn't pay the dues, whose problem is it? Those troublesome Christians. Or maybe you are at one of the festivals and the celebrations. And one of the normal things to do with these celebrations is to give homage to the emperor. But if you're a Christian and you say, I don't serve any king but Jesus, and I'm not going to give offering to Caesar, or pay homage to Caesar, now you are not only a, a, an, a weird person as a Christian, you're now unpatriotic. You're not participating in the rituals of the nation state. And so they wonder, do you truly love this empire? Or are you a threat to it? Can I do one more? One more of these. Back in the day, there was no Christian, like, chicken. There was no chick. Y'all got Chick-fil-A in New York? Y'all got that here? Okay. 
I don't know how saved y'all are. Okay. So back in the day, I was like, when you eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich, you like praying twice, right? You bless the Lord, pour it, and you put it in your mouth. Anyway, okay, okay. Lots of the meat, lots of the meat came from the leftovers of sacrifices to pagan gods. And some of the Christians thought that eating this idolatrous meat was unthinkable. And so now Christianity has affected your diet, your jobs, your social standing. In a thousand ways, Christianity was just weird. And that's a small step from being perceived as odd to dangerous or a threat to the republic. In other words, the Christians to whom John wrote were not a comfortable middle-class group looking for God to fill this God-shaped hole in their lives. These are people who encountered the living God, converted, and found their lives materially worse because they were Christian. It was the Christian bit that was causing problems. So what do you do? What do we do? Christianity is the thing between us and a seemingly simpler life. Well, they had three choices then. To recant, turn away from the faith, to resist, or to redefine the faith. You can just walk away. It's too hard to do. And I've seen many Christians do this. One of the other things about being a Christian in your 40s is you have many people who began this spiritual journey with you who are in a much different place. And I'm not casting judgment upon them. Please don't hear this as some kind of condemnation. Because much of it is our own fault. We have hurt and wounded people. People have seen the, the dirty underbelly of the church and been run away. Some have just come by their doubts honestly. And the enigmas and the doubts and the complexities of the human experience seem to overwhelm them and they don't know what to do. Others have decided that, you know, it's easier to be a Christian. I just smooth out the rough edges to adopt a form of Christianity that won't unsettle our cultural betters. So, you know, why not give a couple of offerings to Caesar if I know in my heart there's only one true God? Do the patriotic thing. Be a good citizen. What do we do? Here's the thing. As best as we can tell, John does not see the solution to the, play, the solution to the problems to play Christians to be an immediate change in circumstances. In other words, John actually can't say, hold on for a few more days, things are going to get better. John doesn't actually say to them, I know it's hard to be a Christian now, but your blessing is around the corner. I used to wonder when I was growing up, how many corners are in this neighborhood? Because I can never get to the blessing. I just keep circling the block and ending back up. Just give me, anyway, okay. But John doesn't say your blessing is around the corner. Furthermore, John doesn't even have in mind a new model of ministry. Like the problem isn't that we're doing it wrong, that if we kind of adopt a new evangelistic technique or if we get new smokes, well, you don't, you don't have smoke screens in an Episcopal church. <laughs> Better vestments, they gotta be cultured here. <laughs> if the chanting was a little bit more on key, that, that'd bring revival. But John doesn't actually offer this. He doesn't offer a trick to solve our problems. As a matter of fact, John sees more suffering ahead. He actually thinks it's hard, but it's going to get worse. 
So here's the question. What do we say to Christians like us who are going through a difficult season when an immediate change is not on offering? And there's not a technique that we can adopt going to get us out of our problems. And I am no prophet. I'm not John. But I do not see it getting any easier to be a faithful Christian in these yet-to-be United States, as my pastor Charlie Bates calls them. In the time I have left, then, I just want to point to two scenes from the book of Revelation. It's opening declaration and it's vision of history that I think offers a crucial word in this moment. So I think if the slides work, we will have slide number one, which is um, Revelation chapter one, verses one to seven. Is it there? Look at, look at God. Look at look how he did it. I sent you this morning at like 11 o'clock because I was at some of the other talks and they had slides. So I figure I got a slide too, but all you get is the Bible. Okay, here we go. No memes. <laughs> this is low tech. Okay, here we go. I'm go team Bible. There we go. Okay, here we go. Well, you gonna, if you're team Bible, you're going to like the first movement. Here we go. Okay, here we go. First movement in this talk. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. The first thing that I want to tell you that may be of comfort is that John does not come up with an answer. The first verse actually says the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants. John then, to a people who are uncertain about their future, rest his word of hope and assurance and authority on hearing from God. Now, of course, of course, what John says here does not extend to the rest of the New Testament. In other words, John is only talking about his, his revelation here. But I think it's fair to say that in a variety of ways, the Old Testament and the New Testament makes the claim that God speaks through the writers to the people. In other words, these writers are claiming they have heard from God and they're speaking to us. Now, what I'm not suggesting is this simple idea of 
the Bible says that, therefore, I believe it. But I am asserting that John rests his authority on hearing from God. And that as a Christian, we believe that God comes to his people rooted in, own, in, rooted in their own culture in its own timeless idiosyncrasies. How do you say that word? Quirks. There we go. That's why God gave us the thesaurus. Okay. Let me, let me explain what I'm trying to get at here. There, there's this assumption that because the Bible is somehow socially located, that it comes from a time and a place, that means it is somehow limited. But the Christians seem to have this radical idea that God speaks to a certain people at a certain time, but that message is God is bigger than the cultural limitations, and he speaks through culture to people. There's another mode of divine revelation. If anyone understands the story of the creation of the Book of Mormon, in the story of the creation of the Book of Mormon, the angel comes down and there's the golden plates, and then you have to find, Joseph Smith finds the golden plates, you know this story? And then he translates it. So in other words, there's no mediator between the divine word and the person. There's no culture. The word comes directly from God to us, and therefore we know it's perfect. That's actually not the claim of the New Testament. Not the claim. That God kind of comes around human beings. The consistent claim of the New Testament is that God comes through people in their culture to speak to us, but that speaking is not limited to the culture, but it speaks beyond time. In other words, the claim of the New Testament is that God speaks to his people, and it's through God speaking to his people that we find the way that we should go. What John had to offer to his people then was not at bottom his own wisdom, but a wisdom that John says has his origins from Jesus that, has, that, that goes all the way back to the Father. Now, I do not believe that the Christian can only function if we have an apocalypse. So in other words, that the Christian has to have a vision of Jesus to do anything. But I do believe, my claim is much smaller. My claim is that as a Christian, our authority, as a clergy person who's going to preach and teach these words, our authority is not rooted in our own wisdom, but in the ability to hear from God and then give that to the people. We have nothing to offer from ourselves that comes from God. I'm very suspicious then of a Christianity that says, trust me, we can take it from here. Because every single time that's happened, black people have often suffered. So you and I may get it wrong. I may read this text poorly. I might even get it wrong today. But if that wrongness comes from me trying to hear from God and give it to the people, then if I am wrong, then there's a path of recovery. If we unloose ourselves from the text, then we're only left with the, the social consensus of modern, moneyed, liberal democracies, then all we're left with is an assertion of power. We're rich, we're smart, we finally got it right, and everyone should listen to us. The colonizers then write again. My claim is that returning to God's self-revelation is the path to finding ourselves when we get lost. So what can I suggest then when people feel like they're lost and they don't know what to do? It is not the job of the wise Christian to solve all the problems. 
It's the job of the Christian to strive with all of our might to hear from God what he speaks to the churches. John says to a suffering people, God has a word. And what I want to say to the church in America is that maybe when we hear from God again, we might find our way forward. First movement, listen to God. I know, it's not a super complicated talk. Point two. Listen to God is radical when we, never mind. I'll leave that alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. I'll get emails about that part of the talk. I'll be a fundamentalist on Tuesday. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. They've already, have I gotten the check yet from Mockingbird? I don't know. No, no, it's it's I've heard, I've heard many talks on this section of Revelation. And most of those talks focus on the letters to the churches that follow. What I want to attend to in this second movement of my talk is how God is actually described in this text. He says, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Those of you who know a little bit of Bible, what does this come from? Anyone? What book of the Bible? Ah, oh, the all Episcopalians. I'm sorry. It's from the book of Exodus. <laughs> from the book of Exodus. It's from the book of Exodus. It's the divine name. It's a divine name. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush and, and Moses asks God, God tells Moses the name is I am. So in other words, when, when God reveals himself to the people, he describes himself using the divine name. The one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come. This is crucial to a people who are suffering because God evokes a name that he first revealed in a time of rescue. Get it? When the people of Israel had no way out of slavery, they had no way forward, there was no way out of Egypt, God sent Moses. So by addressing a people who were beleaguered with the divine name, he's reminding them of who he is. He's playing the hits. You know, when, when, when you all introduced me here, a lot of the times they try to make the speaker sound important, right? And so they say the things that they've done. And so they kind of go St. Andrews, N.T. Wright, New York. In other words, to give you guys some hope that I'm not going to waste your time. So it's really important to ask yourselves, what's on God's CV? What does he repeat again and again and again? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Sometimes the way forward is backwards through memory. That God is calling his people to recognize that they're not the first ones to be placed in difficult situations. We serve a God who liberates in hopeless context. The next thing that John refers to is the sevenfold spirit. I know most of y'all don't know where that one comes from. We're not going to do that quiz. But I'm going to tell you. It's from Isaiah chapter 11, when it's the depiction of the Messiah. You might know this from the, Christ, the Christmas liturgy. The root from the stump of Jesse, the spirit of wisdom and power and insight. You know that part? It's in the liturgy, but it's also in the Bible. But anyways, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11, that is read sometime around 2nd or 3rd Advent, speaks of the root that's going to come from the stump of Jesse, and the Messiah is going to have these sevenfold traits of the spirit. So in other words, when he turns to describe the Holy Spirit, he also uses a passage that speaks to a hopeless people. When the tribe of Jesse seemed to be gone and there was nothing there 
but a little stomp. And the story is over. He said, God is going to do a work empowered by his spirit to raise up the Messiah. In other words, God is calling you once again to remember. Finally, John describes Jesus as the faithful witness. He tells them to remember the story about Jesus, the only one who never lied to us, who sets us free. And I'm sorry, there was a joke about the Trinity Sunday earlier today, but John here, and I want you to, this is my pushback on practical preaching. Right, here it goes. In the context of a beleaguered people who didn't know what they were going to do, who were facing increasing persecution, John may have given the most robust articulation of proto-Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. So, in other words, when you don't know what to do, what does John say? Behold the Trinity. Maybe our problem is, is in the midst of our suffering, we've turned our eyes from the God who saved us, and we've forgotten the story. John is saying to the people at the beginning, remember the God we serve. At bottom, Christians have nothing better to offer the world or each other than the living God. And trust me, I am team go transform the world and engage in social action. That's why half of y'all don't like me, all right? <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. And that's important. But if any of that is ceased to be rooted in the vision of the glory of the triune God that we're reflecting through our social action, then we're wasting our time. In other words, I think John believes that our problems seem biggest when God slides from view. In other words, our big mistake is we thought that we can solve people's problems by saying less about God and more about our practical issues, but we magnified the issues and we shrunk down God. This brings me then to my third and final movement. First movement, we are a people who need a revelation. We need a God who's outside of us, who can speak a word to our circumstances. We're not as wise and urbane and sophisticated as we think we are. We need guidance. Secondly, we need the vision of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has a habit of rescuing and redeeming his people when they are suffering. Last part. We need to remember the role that God plays in the story. And now I've got to skip forward to chapter 5. Is that, is that going to show up too? Chapter 5. And I wish that I had all day to talk about this one, but it's late and my daughter's birthday is tomorrow morning, so I got to catch a flight. Okay, anyways, here it goes. I'm going to try to be brief here. Then, wait, what is it? That's on there. Okay, okay. Listen, I got the Bible here, so this is free. that's helping y'all. All right, here it goes. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the scroll, a throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, 
who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth could open the scroll, even look inside of it. I wept and I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, this is the bar, this is the line, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls in his seven seals. John sees a vision in the fifth chapter of one sitting in a throne with a scroll sealed with seven seals. The scroll represents all of human history and all that is going to take place from now until the end. And the question posed in these verses is probably the central question of human history. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's in charge of human history? This is the reason why we're so afraid, right? We don't know who's in charge. Who has the power to bend the unruly hearts of men and women to their proper end? Who knows what is going to happen next? You know, there is an industry in, in every arena of the human enterprise whose job it is to tell us what's going to happen next. If you can predict who's going to win the NBA championship, you can retire. It's the Lakers. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Knicks fans. Maybe you'll win this next round, but that's it. Okay, anyways. What's going to happen to the stock market? Will I find love? How do I get the job that I want? This desire to predict is in every element of our lives. We want to know. Every single politician who runs says, I see a dark future if you don't trust me to bend the things the way it needs to. You know, I'm 42. I don't know how many most important elections in my life I can have. Right, how many battles for the soul of America can we have? I mean, like, it's like the rematch <laughs> every four years. Right. At this point, it's the same generation fighting in every battle. That's another question for another day. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all 85 years old. Can a 40-year-old give? Anyways, never mind, never mind. Never mind. No young people ever run anything. Okay, that's another question for another day. All right, we'll go on. But we don't know. We don't know the future. Wars break out unexpectedly. Racial injustice waxes and wanes seemingly at random. And it's not just national upheavals. How many times have you had your, your, your life mapped out in what you thought you were gonna do it this year, this year, and this year, and your own personal apocalypse happens and everything falls to pieces? All of our carefully designed plans are just gone. And we, and we wonder, and we're depressed. Is there anybody who can help me? Somebody tell me what to do. I want to point out something. Because John is the one who is weeping and confused like many of us. But it's at least interesting that John is in the throne room of heaven. Right? <laughs> While he's having a panic attack. And there's a person on the throne holding the scroll, right? And he goes, who can help, right? John is afraid because he doesn't know who to turn to. And there's a guy, at least for me, I'm going to trust the guy with the, on the throne, but I'm going to leave that alone, right? 
Not only that, John has seen the ministry of Jesus. He has seen him in his glorified state, in his resurrected body. But John was still afraid. Because you know what can happen? Trauma can shrink our field of vision so we cannot see the evidence of God at work all around us. Trauma can cause us to relitigate our past so that all of our previous experiences of God were fake and now all that is real is the problem that's in front of us. You ever had that happen? You can have 20 miracles in a row. The first time God, it was all fake. And so John panics. We live in this world surrounded on every part by God's glory, but we doubt him all of the time. So John notices something that is true. There is no one in heaven or on earth who is able to open the scroll or to even look inside. Those are two separate things. Not only do we lack the power to, to open it and unfurl human history, we can't even see inside of it to know what is going to happen. You all have no idea what is coming next. You didn't see the pandemic coming. You didn't see the wars coming. You didn't see all of this stuff. I, like, I'm sorry. They're inventing like new racisms, right? New forms of Messiah. What is happening? And you, and, and you see the sense of like, we, we do not know what the world is going to demand of us. How many times we put our trust in some leader to only see or feel that deep sense of betrayal? So John's statement is a true one. None of us is worthy to order human history. None of us should be in charge. And this is why John weeps. He weeps because a life without anyone in charge is a tragedy hurling towards another tragedy. And that's how life feels sometimes. No one is in charge. Evil, malice, greed, injustice seems to win. And if we're completely honest, there's a little dark part of us that's intrigued by the possibility that no one is in charge. Because if there's no one in charge of ordering history, and we're hurling from darkness into darkness, then we can take a little bit of what we want to. We can participate in the wounding of others as we head towards our own demise. But in the midst of John's tears, he receives words of comfort, what he should have known the whole time. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. John's answer then to the question, of why we are Christians when it's hard, when the world is a mess sometimes. It's actually quite simple. Jesus has defeated death and won for himself the power over human history. We follow Christ when it is hard because he has triumphed. And like I said, suffering can cause us to relitigate the past. We can question the things that we've always believed. But I've become convinced, this is how I make it through, that we have to ask theological questions in the correct order. For example, either 2,000 years ago that tomb was empty or it wasn't. And nothing that happens after that first Easter can put Jesus back in the tomb. 
White supremacy cannot unresurrect Jesus. Christ reigns even when it seems that he is far in distance. But the power of God is always as close as Christ is risen. This is what you need to take with you. John describes then the lion and the lamb. Our hope is that our warrior and champion, the lion, is also the great lover of humanity, the lamb who died for our sins. This is what makes him worthy. This is the only argument that we have. There is no better one. Jesus died for you, and he defeated death, and he has won your allegiance. And search if you must, but I've not found anyone more worthy. The scene then ends with a song. You're worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and nation and people to serve you. We follow Jesus when it is hard because we believe he is in charge of human history. And he won that right by dying for us and gathering to himself a people from every corner of the globe who despite everything continue to laud him in every language and tongue. When Jesus gave his famous bread of life discourse in John's gospel, the one about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, many of the people turned back and walked away. And Jesus asked his disciples, shall you leave too? To which Peter replied, where shall we go? You have the word of, of eternal life. I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus did the things described in the New Testament. That he gave us his words and his actions to shape our imagination and our lives. And part of what it means when I don't know what to do is that I struggle to hear him again and obey him. I'm a Christian because the vision of God that I see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the vision of a God who again and again comes to rescue a beleaguered people. And I believe that what he has done in the past, he would do again, that he will rescue us. Not in the sense of taking us out of the world, to giving us a faithful path through it. And finally, I'm a Christian because I believe that at the end, he will bend the hearts of men and women and the arc of human history to the creation of the beloved community gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That we will see our King and Savior. We will behold him as our great friend and lover, and not as our enemy. Thank you.